0: Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I'll be speaking with Harlan Lebo, author of the book Citizen Kane, A Filmmaker's Journey, published in 2016 by Thomas Dunn Books. Considered by many experts as the greatest film ever made, Citizen Kane was the first movie of Orson Welles. Harlan was able to draw on a variety of sources not previously used to present the first true examination of the film's production. He presents a fascinating overview of a masterpiece. Welcome to Harlan Lebo. Hi Harlan, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here, thanks. Now I'm from the pre-VCR days and actually read more about Citizen Kane before I actually had a chance to even see it. Um, I think when it first came out on video cassette, there was this period of time where supposedly it was out of copyright, and so there were all these bootleg versions of it, seemingly, that came out. But nowadays, of course, we've got this absolutely beautiful print of it, so it's, it's much easier to watch, and I'm sure uh, um, it looks so much better than the early ones. But I think today, many people just aren't aware of how groundbreaking a film it was. But let's get a little bit of background about you first. Since this podcast is devoted to authors, I always like to learn something about what leads people to specific projects. Uh, what are your writing experiences and and what do you do for a living, so to speak? Because uh, I know you've got an educational position as well.
1: I have. Uh, I worked for 27 years at UCLA. I was director of communications for the largest part of the university and held other jobs as well and met my agent through that job because at the time she was specializing or was one of her one of her approaches to, to selling books was looking for academic authors to write about uh general interest topics. So she contacted my office and we set her up in with some people that uh good faculty that I worked with every day. But then, of course, uh, I did want to be a writer outside my regular work and said, well, if you're looking for academic authors, how about not academic authors? Um, and the book, first book that came to mind for me was an idea that had intrigued me for a while. I'm a, certainly a film fan, like most people, not a fanatic, but I certainly love movies and like now like writing about them. But my idea was, uh, at the time, you know, this is in the late uh, mid-1980s was to do a 50th anniversary book about what was considered the great film, the great greatest year of all time in movies, which was 1939. And she agreed and we sold that idea knowing full well, or the, the publisher knew, because we found out later in this process that there was a competing book. My publisher knew that, but chose to buy mine anyway and then the project after, even though <laughs> they knew about the other book, they then uh decided to cancel the project i was paid for it but the book never did, did did occur so i decided okay well i'm going to get ahead of this game this time and decided to look at what was coming down the road and other anniversaries and of course citizen kane its 50th anniversary was coming up in 1991 proposed a book about that as a coffee table book and it was accepted and published by Doubleday, uh and it did very well and it was quite nice and gratifying uh but it never really was the full story of the film and then we'll come back to that in a second but so from there you know after you know 20ish years of being someone who wrote every day about the arts humanities and the sciences i had suddenly became a movie writer and wrote uh the book on the first book on citizen kane followed then by a book on casablanca and then a book on the godfather uh happily these three top later became the three top films on the American Film Institute's list of the best American films ever made. So I've been quite fortunate in that, uh, and liked all of my books. But I and have you know since moved on to other projects. But it always occurred to me the original reason I wrote the book about Citizen Kane was I had this even though I had this, I had the same assumption that everyone else did with all the criticism and analysis and compendiums of reviews and interviews about Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, that surely there must have been a book about the making of the film. And it turns out there wasn't. There is no other nonfiction narrative about the making of Citizen Kane other than my coffee table book published in 1991. Um, There's been an academic book and a very good academic book, but it's, it's much shorter and it covers specific issues about other films as well. But, so mine was the first after 50 years. And I realized then that a coffee table book was no way to treat that subject. So I always kept it in my back pocket. And as the 75th anniversary approached, um, I proposed the book again. And Thomas Dunn Books was willing to take it on, and they are. And the book will be published on April 26th. So I'm quite happy with it.
0: Yeah, the first written material I ever saw was was uh, this a book that came out was actually just a reprint of a Pauline kale essay, but it also had the shooting script. It was called The Citizen Kane Book. I still have that book. It came out in 74, and I still have that book, and I haven't looked at it in a long, long time, but as you can tell based on the date, it was long before the film was easily available to view, so the only way you would have been able to see it back then would likely have been in some sort of a, a, a of a film festival because it certainly wasn't getting shown on television back in that period of time.
1: It was shown from time to time. You'd see it on on you know a late night show. There was no Turner Classic Movies in 1974, and you're right. You'd have to be if you were in Los Angeles or New York or any college town that has a revival had a revival theater, uh, then you'd be, you'd be able to see it every once in a while, and probably not the best of prints. Um, and since then, of course, Pauline Kael's book has been, and Pauline Kael's work on Orson Wells and Citizen Kane has been severely discredited uh, on a lot of levels. So it's, it's been, um, it, it, there really is no, there's no other real narrative uh, other than what other people write sort of peripherally about it. So I'm very, I'm very happy to have the opportunity. This book is, of course, much longer, uh, fewer, many fewer photos, and it's a, it's, Almost sixty-five thousand words longer than my original book, so it's an actual hardcover. You know, read it, don't peruse it. Book,
0: right? No, I really. I mean, obviously, I got lucky enough to read the book ahead of time and before our interview, and I. It was fascinating. It was. Uh, you clearly. I mean, I've written a lot. I've read a lot of books about the making of various films, but it definitely is up there with some of the best I've ever read. It. You know, about about how a particular film was made, and frankly i think what we're seeing in in the writing is that we're seeing in more and more books that are coming out where authors are are getting the chance to look at archival material and really good resources and, and source material to help them develop really good uh, i mean i've a number of the people i've interviewed already have been able to do the same thing with other films but uh it's the same concept if you if you can access sources and interview the right people it's unbelievable how much in-depth you can get about well-known films that people think they know all about, and it turns out they learn a great deal more just by reading the books, and yours is definitely one of those.
1: Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. I tried very hard to keep myself out of it. I'm not an interpretive writer. Uh, I try just to present the facts as much as I can because there's so there's so many facts about this movie. It's such... A great story, Joel. It doesn't need me embellishing it to make it an incredible story about a 24 year old who came to Hollywood and, in his first movie made under incredible pressure, produced the best film ever made. It's just an incredible story.
0: What I, I know a lot of these days, especially with the way films are made nowadays and the kind of films we see regularly, and I'm not trying to be critical, I'm just pointing out the differences. I mean, leave it to other people. It be critical if they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was so groundbreaking? I mean, I know we could spend hours just talking about this question, but in, as best as you can, in brief, what's, what was so groundbreaking about Citizen Kane in relation to the kind of films that were being made at the time?
1: I think the simplest way to look at that, because you're right, this could be hours or seminars on this subject, but the easiest way to describe it is Orson Welles working with his team managed to accomplish creative things that had never really been done before. Uh, by by capitalizing on the wonderful photography of his cinematographer, Greg Toland, and working in partnership with their art director, Perry Ferguson, they created the sets, chose the way the film was shot, uh, used every opportunity from dissolved to special effects to making sets different look differently than they had before, uh, to just setting up the camera all in ways that expanded the creative experience uh, like nothing else. And I always like to use the example of uh, a lot of Citizen Kane was shot at RKO Pathé, which was also the home of David Selznick, it's where a lot of Gone with the Wind was shot. It's in, it's in Culver City. The other half was shot at RKO in Hollywood. So it was shot, the RKO Pathé scenes were shot right down the street at exactly the same time as another great film was being made, which was The Philadelphia Story. Which starred Catherine Hepburn and James Stewart and Cary Grant at MGM. It's a wonderful film, but it's a textbook example of how a film was made in Hollywood then, with relatively flat sets, people walking left to right, appearing at the front of the frame, the the camera, the lighting is relatively flat. Uh, that has nothing to do with the charm of the film or the writing or the personalities, but as a creative motion picture, it's not. Uh, at the same time Citizen Kane was being shot where sets were deep. They were ultra-realistic. They People moved back and forth across sets and left to right, forward to backwards, uh, all in deep focus, shot low so you'd see ceilings and got greater realism from that. All of those things that Orson Welles and Greg Toland and Perry Ferguson tried so hard to do and they did so successfully, all of that combined with The way Orson Welles edited the script, well, most co wrote and then solely, practically, edited the script, where the film becomes a series of tiny little images about the life and times of Charles Foster King. Uh, All brilliantly done. So that's the short version. We could expand on that (laughs) for hours or days. I
0: I think the other issue, or the other thing, and and you mentioned a couple other films, well, obviously the Philadelphia story, of course. 1939, as you intimated, was an unbelievable year for films given that Gone with the Wind came out in 1939 The Wizard of Oz came out in 39. Of course those were two lavish color productions, but they were also studio productions yes, and that were. was that was the other major thing that nowadays people don't even not that studios don't have control, they certainly do but it's not the same kind of situation where one of the great things that Wells was able to do as part of his contract, was to actually get right of, of uh, final cut. And yeah. nowadays, that's probably not that unusual, but back then it was almost impossible.
1: Yes, it was. I, there, the, the total number of people who had that level of creative control at that moment in Hollywood was one, which was Char, Charlie Chaplin. Uh, and that's because he owned his own studio and had his own financing. Uh, Orson Welles, he, does not, he had unprecedented creative control it wasn't total creative control. The studio did have some choice in the matter, but for the, the biggest issue is what you just described. Orson Welles had right to final cut, um, and that just did not happen. I mean, Howard Hawks and John Ford and a lot of other great directors didn't get right to final cut. Uh, they had a lot of input, but not final cut, and that really infuriated Hollywood, a lot of Hollywood, and scared a lot of Hollywood, too not just because Orson Welles might have cost his studio millions of dollars. There's no way that would have happened. It it could have been hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that would have been about the worst of it. The worst thing would have been if he'd really succeeded, which is what he did. But if he'd succeeded for more than one film, I think people would have started to wonder, well, maybe we have to really loosen this up, and maybe we have to start giving directors more creative control. And what would be the ramifications of that? Of course, some directors created their own creative control, like John Ford and Howard Hawks were notorious for cutting in the camera or being very close to their original scripts and working on their original scripts. So there really wasn't a lot that the studio could do, but they did have the right to make changes, and they did. But for Wells, there was very little they could do.
0: And of course, though, unfortunately, as you pointed out, he would have needed to have two successes. And of course, famously, his second film, he did not, in the end, have total Final Cut. They released it heavily edited from what he originally did. So uh, and and that it's unfortunate in many ways that his his first movie was his biggest success in it as a film. Granted, he had successes later, but it's hard to go up higher when you're already at the top with your first film.
1: It is, but and well, you're you're right. But I would much rather have that first great film than to never have it at all. But it it is difficult. Wells had his problems as a a creative talent. Um, And we could always, looking back on it, in in 2020 hindsight, never got clearer than it is about Orson Welles. Had he not gone to South America to work on his ill-fated project called It's All True, had he hung around to work on Magnificent Ambersons, um, it all might have been better. Uh, I think if you look at Magnus and Ambersons—they wanted that movie to succeed. Um, they they cut it pretty much as Wells wanted it cut for its first showings, and it did not do well in its first showings. Um, and if Wells had been there to fight for it, it might have gone better. But it's not in in a story that everybody can embrace. What I wish he had done was, after Citizen Kane, was reverted back to his original plan when he came to Hollywood, which was to make. The heart of darkness. That would have been fantastic. Um, so yeah, we can all look back and then watch that long, slow spiral that affected Wells throughout the forties. Um, but you know, who are we to judge?
0: <laughs> well, you even in your in your biographical material about him, and this is something we've known, but we've read in other things is how much of a you know he was somebody who had huge um, appetites on very many different levels. Mm-hmm. Including ego and everything else, so it's not a huge surprise that somebody who is that, you know, with those kind of of, of ways, isn't always going to be able to succeed because their their expectations may be too high for anything that they 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 think they should be able to do something and it, they just can't and for a variety of reasons. So I'm sure that's all interrelated with with him.
1: It is. It, it probably is. I mean, he was moving too fast. Uh, and unwisely in many ways. And I think there were examples of people around him that had he looked around and been more willing to, to plan his creative direction a little bit better and not move in such a rush and in so many directions all at once, he would have done better. Um, there's a very famous drawing of him done by the cartoonist Al Hirschfeld where it shows Orson sitting at a table and he's got... He's more an octopus than a person. He's got arms doing this and arms doing that. And that really, it was meant as a compliment, but it's also, it was also to his detriment. Uh, if you look at someone like Laurence Olivier at the time, who was very busy in theater, he was busy in movies, and he was also busy behind the camera. But it was very carefully chosen, the films that he made, uh, and they were tremendous successes. Uh, but he did create opportunities for himself, but primarily through his acting on screen and on stage. And Orson just wanted it too much, too fast.
0: And I, I just watching the film and understanding that not only was he a great actor—I mean, because the film—if you—if you watch him, there's just so much aspect of the film that I think his acting doesn't always get. I mean, not it's probably not true, but I just feel like his. His acting was great. I mean, some of his scenes where he just says lines where you would think that, that that's his real, that's him talking. It's not like it's a its a line. He just, he's got a way of saying a line where it's almost like a throwaway, but it works perfectly. And there's a couple scenes in the film where that's so obvious, especially with some of the, 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 the discussions about uh, some of the schools he'd been thrown out of and stuff. It's just his form, his way of speaking it the line makes it just seem like that's him for real. So I think his acting alone, he deserves the amount of credit just for that, let alone the rest of the filmmaking.
1: No, he does. Uh, the, the fil- his acting in that film has to rank with the best, pe- certainly in my mind, the top two or three best film performances ever. And it's, it's always overlooked. But if you think about this, hiding under the skin of that 70-year-old man or that 55-year-old man or that 40-year-old man in Citizen Kane is a 24-year-old or 25-year-old by the time they made the movie, a 25-year-old who'd never been in a Hollywood film before. It's absolutely astonishing watching him as an old man or as a middle-aged man acting with such utter realism and so much feeling that it's just truly astonishing.
0: Well, let's get into the book a little bit more. Like I say, I think Everybody. we just we decided right from the start that we could just sit and talk about the film forever without actually talking about some of the things you wrote about. But I, I want to definitely get in there. But let's talk about some of the sources you used, because I know that this book has had some pre-publicity, which is great. But some of it, maybe let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the aspects about the sources, because... You used a variety of different things, but before we look at archive sources, who were you able to interview? There, I know you were actually able to interview some people who actually worked on the film but unfortunately are no longer living. You, you interviewed them before they passed away. So who were some of the people that you talked to, and, and what kind of sense did you get from from them?
1: I did. I, had a, uh, I was very fortunate to rely on the generosity of, of five people who were involved in the, making, in the making of the film. William Allen, who played the reporter, Thompson, uh, the one who's on the search for Rosebud, uh, Ruth Warwick, who played his second wife, M- uh, uh, Emily, Richard Wilson, his associate producer, and was with him a long-time confidant, and Robert Wise, the Academy Award-winning director and, at the time, an editor on staff at RKO, and he edited Citizen Kane. In addition, so I talked to all of them, all four of them, back in the late 80s and early 90s. And, um, and then more recently, I talked with the family of Catherine Trosper Popper, Catherine Trosper being Orson Welles' personal assistant. She passed away a month ago at the age of almost, she just didn't quite make 101. Uh, but her family, she actually lived with her daughter, who's a, one of the top pediatricians in New York, and her son is a retired newspaper reporter who lives in Kansas City, and they opened the doors to me. They made it gave me every opportunity to get, get information and background from her work with Orson Welles, which was wonderful, and Joe, her son, had interviewed her at length. It would have been challenging for me to do an interview with her now, a direct interview. So he was kind enough to go into his own archives, take a list of my questions, and pull out of it Material from her that I was able to use in the book, which was just so generous of them, and I'm really grateful to them, so those five participants were all part of my discussions for writing the book
0: This is what I was mentioning before about how we're lucky as uh, film fans or even film uh, the people who who work on film history for a living to actually be able to find some of these art the not only the people but also. Some of the materials these folks had, I know there's been a lot of writing, say, on Alfred Hitchcock, where we're actually able to hear more from people who work with them so regularly, and it helps because it gives you the opportunity. So anything like that related to this is absolutely spectacular. That sounds to me like you were planning this book for a long, long time. If you've got older interviews that you were able to to draw back on as far as uh, the 80s and 90s interviews.
1: Well, they were all done in preparation for the the 50th anniversary book, so I was fortunate about that. Catherine Trosper came up at the last second, because through my own misinterpretation of another obituary, I thought she had passed away a long time ago. And then in revisiting it, I had some questions about the origins of the script myself, and it turned out she was still with us. And that was a a happy surprise, And, and she was just a treasure. It was a wonderful thing to have access to her.
0: And then what about written source or are there what we would call archive sources? What kind of material did you have access to that maybe others haven't or that others have but maybe you've found a new way to use them?
1: Well, that's one of the fortunate things about being the first one to write a a nonfiction narrative of a project is that anything you do is going to be considerably different than anything else done. Uh, Everything I used was completely available to anyone who would like it. the two primary sources for Wells material. The two primary sources: one for Wells, which was the Lilly Library at Indiana University, and for material from the Hearst Archives, the Bancroft Library at the University at UC Berkeley. They're both open and available. In the case of, I could have gone to Berkeley, but um, they have a. The, the library is wonderful about working with local researchers who are available. Uh, For hire to go into the archives and do research based on a specific request. So I worked with a wonderful researcher based in the Bay Area. Her name was Juliet Demeter. And she did the research. She had a list of things and a specific period. I asked her to go through those files. And she produced dozens and dozens and dozens of pages of material that were useful for me. In the case of the Lilly Library, there was no question about the period that I was interested in. There are thousands of pages of Orson Welles' memos, correspondence, letters, notes from his lawyers, from his staff. Uh, again, the period was very specific. So rather than having to go to Indiana, which I would have preferred because the campus is wonderful and that neighborhood is wonderful, uh, they were able to ship out, um, God heavens, 600 pages of of copied memos um, to me as the digital files so I could happily scan, I could happily read through them. Uh, So those are the two primary ones. The others, because I'm in Los Angeles, Uh, UCLA has some archival material from RKO and from individual films that RKO has done. And the uh, Library of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in Beverly Hills also has good collections of notes uh, on many films, including Citizen Kane, an original program from the L.A. premiere, Uh, lots of photographs, clips, uh, some notes of their own. Uh, so those are, since I'm fortunate enough to be in the Los Angeles area, uh, those are things that I have easy access to. But you'd mentioned early in this process that, you know, how access to archival material is changing. In the old days, you'd have to go and sit and sift through papers. Now, with the cooperation of wonderful librarians all over the world, but in my case, just in the United States, uh, they were able to produce exactly what I needed, uh, which was fantastic. What a time saver and a money money saver.
0: Having worked on <clears throat> having worked on historical projects, although not film related, I know what you mean. I used to live in the Cleveland area and regularly used the Western Reserve Historical Society, and the people who worked there were uniformly spectacular. And frankly, my career is a librarian. I worked for thirty years as a li- as a public librarian, so. Every time I read a book where the librarians get specific credit or special thanks in archives I always I always think that's right that's the kind of thing we believe in we want the information out there so it's useful we we like to be helpful to people cuz that's what we want we don't want to hide it we want it out there so
1: <laughs> yep definitely it's wonderful
0: one of the parts then from this uh early on in the book or you know in the earlier part of the book you spend a lot of time Rightly talking about the script, Um, as and this is one of the old, older stories about Citizen Kane that uh, controversies that have been that actually is reasonably well known, which is who should receive you know the credit in you know the film. Obviously, we know that Herman Mankiewicz was the official uh, writer of the initial script, but both he and Wells get uh, credit on this on the script, and of course people who there are people who believe that Mankowitz should have received more of the credit or most of the credit that the film was built so much on what he did but you presented a number of great examples of how Will Wells was able to develop based on what Mankowitz first uh presented how did w- what were your views as you started to read through some of the early versions of the scripts and some of the other notes as to how the process actually worked.
1: Well, the process worked a couple of ways. I I think what people forget is before Herman Mankiewicz and John Hausman went out into the desert in California to a little town called Victorville and wrote the first draft of Citizen Kane, before they went, there were dozens, if not hundreds, of hours of discussion between Mankiewicz and Wells and other staff members and John Hausman about characters, about possibilities, about ideas for the, the actual story, and they went out into the desert with the idea of writing a, a screenplay about a powerful man and his life and how people perceived him. So that was done, and that was certainly done in cooperation with Wells. There's also no question that Herman Mankiewicz produced the the first draft script, a very long, unfocused, but... Still, nevertheless, a script, and it contains many of the elements that wound up in the final film. Uh, so, Herman Mankiewicz certainly deserves credit for being involved in the creation of the original draft for Citizen Kane. There's no question about that. But Wells certainly deserves credit, if nothing else, for being, for, for editing that work as a starting point and starting to, to shave it down and form it into a script but he also wrote many individual scenes himself. There's no, no doubt about that. These are all things that Pauline Kale conveniently overlooked, not because people said so, but because they're in people's records, like John Hausman's own files at UCLA, talk about Orson writing parts of the script, and Pauline Kale chose to not write about that. So the controversy really originated with Pauline Kale. It really had died out for the most part when Herman Mankiewicz died, uh, in 1953, so it's it's that was all long past. And Pauline Kael, for whatever reason, decided to take off after Wells uh, just on the on the issue of the script. She never denied that he was the creative vision behind the project, but it's much more than Orson Welles writing, either editing as they went along in creating script drafts or in writing new material himself. His true gift was taking, doing what he had done before in both radio and in theater in New York. His true gift was taking material that was almost there and at the very last second turning it into true genius. That was his strength. And he did that over and over again in practically every scene in Citizen Kane, in shaping the material, in focusing it more and more closely on these images of Charles Foster Kane, which don't even really exist in the final official script draft that was final and official only a few weeks before they started shooting the film. It all occurred between that point and when the move, each scene was actually shot. And you can point at every scene in the movie and see where, that, where Wells did that all on his own, sometimes overnight, sometimes by stepping away. From people who are working on set and rewriting right there on the spot. And Catherine Trosper remembers doing this, where she would work with him, you know, on set, off, you know, they'd step away, they'd send everybody home overnight and they'd they'd rewrite something later. Or she'd take dictation from him at three in the morning when he was, he was getting his makeup on to play Kane at various ages. Uh, all that is Wells' true strength. So absolutely, Mankowitz deserves credit as a co-writer. And absolutely, Wells does too.
0: Yeah, because I think one of the things you talk about in the book was, as you just pointed out, the, he the the initial script was huge. It was certainly never going to be able to be made as it was written. And Wells's strength was being able to take away from you know to pare it down so that because the images was the part that was supposed to tell the story. That's the big difference between say a screenplay and other written forms where even plays where the words are more important in the long run, where with, with a movie, the visual aspect has to be there. And he was able to rip apart some of the scenes that Mankiewicz wrote and put them on the screen without all those words. And And, and I think that's where uh, his true genius as a, as a filmmaker, especially with his first film, came out so well.
1: It really is. And it's actually not just his genius as a filmmaker. It's his incredible gift for creative collaboration on set. And you just identified exactly the kind of thing that separates Citizen Kane from everything else, which was actually written about. Because when Herman Mankiewicz visited the set himself, it was on the day that they were shooting the film of Susan, of the first visit to Susan Alexander, his second wife, um, with the reporter coming to visit her just after Kane has died and she's too drunk to talk to him. And so she tells him to get out of the club they're in. And so she's sitting there morose. Um, Thompson, the reporter, goes to a phone and calls his boss and says, she just won't talk to me. I'm going to go down to Philadelphia and look at the records of Kane's lawyer, Walter Thatcher. Okay, very simple scene. In any other movie, that would have been probably a close-up of Thompson in the phone booth uh, and maybe a cut to show Susan drunk and unhappy and crying. But what Mankiewicz saw was this: the camera in one position photographing Thompson on the phone with Susan in the background, very staid, very looking boring. In fact, he writes a note to, well, saying that it, it everyone's doing a good job, but it looks like a play. It just, it's flat. Well, what he didn't recognize, of course, is what they were trying to shoot, which is what you saw on the camera, which is beautiful lighting where you can't even see Thompson's face. And the camera is shooting him through the door of the phone booth. And Susan's in the background really insignificant, uh, also beautifully lit. It's a real portrait of despair for Susan and the reporter's frustration. Um, just perfectly shot. And here's just a very straightforward shot. One example early in the film of what Wells, working in collaboration with his team, could do.
0: One of the things that I always noticed and actually gets commented on quite a bit is, uh, as you pointed out, Coland and and, and Wells' use of shadow. And that, for example, the reporters, in particular Thompson, you never really see him that much. He's always in shadows. He's always, you know, you don't really see him face to on camera because He's almost the narrator, and there, but but not completely. It's almost like a narrator being used without, but he's actually a character, and I mm-hmm. think that's where so much of the genius of what he of what Wells did, and as you say, in in close uh, work with with Tolan, especially for you know, it's an example of how black and white can be so evocative in films.
1: It can be, and just the lighting too, what actually made more even more. Uh more mysterious through years of watching the movie on bad TV broadcasts because there are several scenes where you can see uh, Thompson, the reporter from the front when he's reading Walter Thatcher's memoirs. There's a shot of him from the front, and there's a shot of him from the front at the beginning when he's talking with his editor about the the secret of Rosebud. But for the most part, none of us have ever seen those, or at least not until recently, because we saw bad prints of the movie in, in revival houses or we saw, uh, or we saw bad television broadcasts of them. Uh, so he was very much obscured by shadow. And I want to—I do want to clarify one thing, which I may have confused in my own mind. Emily was his—Emily, played by Ruth Warwick, was his first wife. Yeah. Susan, I, I, played by Dorothy Gore was the second wife. And I think I may have turned those around in our conversation earlier. Yeah,
0: when we talked about you did mention it at the beginning, and I should have stopped. And, I mean, I should have mentioned it, but I felt like, okay, we'll just let go. I mean, nobody's going to make a big deal about a small misstep where, but thankfully you remembered it by this point, so that's great. Sorry. Nope. Sorry about that, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> nobody's going to mind. Well, we'll deal with it in
1: post, doesn't yeah, it? There, <laughs> yeah,
0: okay. Uh, <laughs> Now, let's go to the second part of what I would consider to be one of the most interesting aspects of Citizen Kane. We haven't really talked about it yet, but obviously it's important to the book and it's important to the film. And that's the issue of William Randolph Hearst. Right. Um, and you discussed this as part of of, of the book and uh, is it, Hearst and his importance to the overall film and and almost its disaster. Um, but first, who was Hearst? Who was William Endolf Hearst, and why is he such a big, important person during this period that would make such a big difference on a film?
1: Well, the, the, probably the easiest way to compare to understand the influence and power of Hearst was to realize, imagine someone like Rupert Murdoch, but with no, with without a lot of other competition around. Uh, at least not a lot of named competition around. There were certainly Other publishers, and there were very influential newspapers and the New York Times, and others were were going quite strong in the 1930s and 40s. But if there was one central figure in both for journalism and controversial journalism, it had to be William Randolph Hearst. His organization of newspapers, magazines, and radio stations, and newsreel companies was probably the dominant organization of its kind in the country at the time. Uh, taking in many of its in many of its publications, very strong sensationalist journalist practices. Yellow journalism really did originate with William Randolph Hearst. Um, he, he covered things in a controversial way. He would his his papers and radio stations would take off on any subject that he bid them to take off on, uh, and they did that regularly. And they really shifted from being. Well, in many ways, a lot like Charles Foster Kane, where starting out as champions of the working man, as they say in Citizen Kane, standing for genuine democracy, which is on many of the Hearst Publications' mastheads, to really becoming narrow-minded, right-wing, sensationalist, uh, and really stooping to all kinds of levels of witch-hunting, red-baiting, you know, partnership with the the congressional committees that were doing witch hunting uh, of communists in the 1940s and 50s. So they were quite a powerful organization, and William Randall Hearst was a well-known, prominent, pr- both well-known and prominent as a business person and also as a celebrity. He hobnobbed in Hollywood. He had his own film production company for a long time. Uh, he was a regular friend of the, the elite and powerful in Hollywood as well, or at least he thought he was. He was certainly involved with all of them, but they often feared him more than they liked him. Uh, it's an odd irony that he was entertaining much of Hollywood at his own homes in Beverly Hills and in, in at San Simeon on the California coast. At the same time, he was threatening RKO and Orson Welles and plotting to write expose stories about some of the biggest people in Hollywood. So... He was the power figure in media of his day.
0: So you're saying he might, if, if he was around today, his, head, his newspapers underneath the name of the newspaper would be fair and balanced. Would be there? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so obviously one of the things related to the film is that, <clears throat> and Hearst is that the belief was that much of the film was about Hearst, that. Or yep. at least by some. Now, yep. what amount? There are different amounts, different varying uh, opinions as to how much of it is really supposed to be Hearst and how much isn't. But there's certainly a number of of similarities between the two, going all the way back to the early part of the film where he t- with the Spanish-American War, uh, which, as you point out, Hearst—you didn't specifically, but you talk about it—is that Hearst is well known for pushing the Spanish-American War, and Wells uses that as part of uh, the early part of the film where he says, uh, you write the prose poem and I'll supply the war, uh, yeah. that kind of situation. So there's one very early on. But Mankiewicz, was the, it was Mankowitz the one who brought Hearst into the story?
1: I think it, they sort of naturally came around to that. Uh, Wells' own father, Orson Wells' own father, had known Hearst as a... As a- when they were both young men and sort of gallivanting about together. Uh, Mangowitz was both an observer of of Hearst as one of the powerful people that the poor guy tended to despise because he was quite a morose figure and despised anyone who was successful uh, to a large extent. But he was also a guest many times at the Hearst home. He well, Mangowitz was a prominent writer and a producer in Hollywood and had many friends in Hollywood and, that extended out into the Hearst family, so he was seen at Simeon or at Hearst gatherings. They were famous for costume parties at their Beverly Hills home uh, several times. So, if you're looking for powerful figures in 1930s America, probably they, you if you start out well, probably with industry people. You know, steel. You know, the Andrew Carnegies and and J. P. Morgans of the world. Of course, those are all earlier than that, but are a little bit earlier than that. Um, they eventually came around to Howard Hughes, and or oil barons, or in his case, aviation and oil. But the story just wasn't quite right. And had they done, had they done, they, I think it was a passing fancy to do Howard Hughes. But had it been Howard Hughes, Joseph Cotton would have played the lead and not Wells. So that probably eliminated <laughs> that idea. But they had they had to eventually come around to newspapers because newspapers really were the the power media of the day. And that really brought them back to William Randolph Hearst. So there was certainly Hearst was one of one of the people that they considered when they were forming the character. Possibly the primary one. Uh but certainly one of many, and you can point to as many examples of actual references to Hearst as you can to other people in the film. But just if anyone went to see the movie in 1941, assuming that the movie was about Hearst, and you saw a movie that starts out with a giant castle built into a hill with its own golf course and its own zoo, and you wind up on a discredited publisher and a news and a newsreel about that publisher and how America was ceasing to trust him and how he was essentially a decrepit old man. And then within minutes, you get to discussions of two points that are directly out of Hearst's life. The idea of, you provide the prose poems, I'll provide the war. That's a direct lift from Hearst. And the line about, you know, if I lose a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. That's a direct quote from Hearst's own mother. So you you would have had to have thought that it was all about William Randolph Hearst. And none of the evidence about other people would have made any difference at all.
0: And of course, then there's... And then the, the controversy, where it got even more controversial was obviously Kane, or excuse me, um, Wells and Mankiewicz decided to make um, her, uh, Kane's paramour to be a bad opera singer, where of course, Hurst uh, was known for his uh, longtime uh, love, Marion Davies, who was. A movie who he made movies for, or he had he used his studio abilities to get film roles for her.
1: Yes, he did. Uh, and, and would Marion Davies has, have been in as many movies as she was without first backing? Probably not, but she was certainly no flop, right. and she was very well liked in Hollywood, and she made a lot of movies, and she loved it, and she loved running first estates for him. She was not the insular, unhappy fish out of water that Susan Alexander that Susan Alexander was.
0: I think of all the role, all the similarities and that that you could put, that was the one that probably had to have been in many ways one of the more um, biting, as far as what Hearst would think, is that mm-hmm. it, it, uh, Wells and Mankiewicz make a a bad opera singer into you know in in their film. As opposed to the real life Marion Davies, who, as you point out, had some success and, and had and had talent, yes, she did now, obviously then um, Hearst supporters and depending on who you talk to, Hearst's backing, tried to derail the production. What kind of examples do you have of what they tried to do in order to stop the film
1: well, I think the the real Intriguing part to me, and again, no secret, but it really we're really dealing with it here. We're dealing with it here in detail for the first time. Is that the conventional story about the plot against Citizen Kane? In the conventional story, begins when Hedda Hopper saw the film in early January of 1941, realized in her mind that Kane was hers. And she, even though she worked for the competition of the Hearst organization, called Hearst's lawyer, alerted him about the film. He then alerted the boss, and they ordered Luella Parsons to see the film. She saw it, was equally horrified, because she went and seeing the film, assuming it was about Hearst. And that day, the Hearst organization started to take action against Citizen Kane and RKO at that moment. That's the conventional story, and all of that did occur. But what hasn't been really written about at length before, and I try to cover it as well as I can, is that this was a much darker, much deeper, and much more insidious plot against Citizen Kane than just sort of the detritus of two, two competing columnists paddling on the movie. That the Hearst organization had suspected for months, weeks, possibly months, that the movie was all about Hearst, they knew that was an issue because even before Hedda Hopper saw the movie, Richard Berlin, the head of Hearst's magazine division, was already turning down advertisements for the film in Hearst publications. And went, not only that, simultaneously was working with colleagues and friends in Hollywood to suppress the film, including going to two studios that ran literally thousands of theaters where Citizen King might have played and stopped the movie from being shown in those theaters. So it eventually became a three-part attack on the film. You know, here's an organization that, uh, you know, that that describes itself as standing for genuine democracy. Then they were going after, they wanted to crush Citizen Kane. They wanted to discredit Orson Welles. They tried to prevent the film's release. They blackmailed Hollywood's leadership by threatening to run all kinds of nefarious stories about both stars and and Hollywood leadership. They red-baited Wells, Wells and his associates and looked into their background for for a communist association. They published distorted articles about the director. And ultimately, they actually plotted to try to force RKO to destroy the film by buying the negative and burning it. So all of that began a long time before Hedda Hopper saw... Citizen Kane for the first time. It, cause it's, that's the
0: story that I think, as you point out, it it, it, it wasn't... So, sometimes in some of the writing you tend to hear, well, it wasn't as big of a deal when really it was. I mean, there's no question that no matter how much you want to believe of what uh, Wells and Mankiewicz might have been purposely doing, the bottom line is Hearst's reaction was... Definitely huge and certainly uh, went pretty far, you know, as far overboard as you probably could have. And the only good thing is, is that they were in the long run unsuccessful. But uh, it's just unbelievable the amount of how somebody who has that much power, as Hearst did, had no question, no problem with just using it to try to do anything he wanted as far as getting what he wanted in this case.
1: Well, that's the, you're, that's it. I mean, the, the two truly sad statements about this whole problem is, number one, if first had just let it lie and not done anything, it would have, the film would have gone on its way, it would have been a huge success, maybe, maybe not would have been associated with it, but who cares? It would have been no big deal. The fact that every major publication in the country, and certainly every publication in Hollywood, covered his attacks on the film, uh, became the news story, uh, which is just so, so sad because that's what Hearst is now remembered for. I mean, his place in history as one of the great leaders of media of his time is now completely shifted into him as being the poster child for yellow journalism in this country uh, and sensationalist journalism in general. Uh, and primarily with the uh, the best evidence of that was being his own attack on Citizen Kane. So that's singularly sad, but what the other sad part is that if anyone had even thought about it, let's say Orson Welles was going after uh, Hearst specifically. There's nothing that Orson Welles would have been doing there that Hearst wasn't doing in his own papers routinely, yet somehow because it was being done against the chief, as they used to call Hearst, that made it wrong, that made it unacceptable, and we're going to go after him because of that. It's a real circle the wagons mentality and very sad in the history of American journalism, but ultimately fascinating, because here we are writing about it again, and there have been movies about this, and it will probably continue to fascinate. I hope it does.
0: And, of course, then the, 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 probably the biggest uh, issue that had he been around at the time the book came out, of course, he was dead already, that... The first major biography of Hearst is called Citizen Hearst. And yes, there's no sure. question that that book came out in 61, 10 years after Hearst died. But there's no question that that title was for a reason. It was clearly meant to point out the obvious.
1: Yep, which is. And by the way, let's let's be clear here. I, there is no question that a lot, of, a lot of Charles Foster Kane is William Randolph Hearst. There's no question about that. Is it entirely about him? No. But it was certainly enough to, to start the wheels spinning against up against Citizen Kane.
0: And there's also uh, there's there's quite a bit of Orson Welles in Citizen Kane as well. So
1: well, that's true. That's a very good point. I mean, Charles Foster Kane is a heck of a lot more like Orson Welles than he is like William Randolph Hearst.
0: Right. The, the situations may be uh, Hearst, but certainly the, and the, the jokes are there concerning, for example, the scene where he's eating and and they're saying that some of it, in his mannerisms some of them they say are just, those are uh, wells's so it's not a surprise. Well, yeah.
1: But yes. One of the things that but one of the things that really fascinates me not just about Citizen Kane although it's the first not only the best but it's the first is Wells' endless fascination with what he called the damned man. The idea of of doing movies about men who are ultimately failures. And if you look at all of his works, I think every film he directed, I don't think there are any, I don't think there are any examples that aren't, but certainly most of his films are about very powerful, very influential, charismatic figures of one kind or another who ultimately fail, always through their own excesses or their own foibles. And that started with Charles Foster Kane, and ultimately, in its own way, was Orson Welles too. Uh, through his own his own mistakes and his own character, he was as not only creatively brilliant, but as a successful regular movie maker, he was a failure.
0: Which is interesting, given that some of the other directors. I mean, we can think of the the anti who I would call the anti Orson Welles would be somebody like a Frank Capra, whose films were always about the regular person succeeding. And mm-hmm. going up, and of course, uh, as you pointed out quite well, is that Wells went the other direction. There were yes, often big people who ended up failing.
1: Yes, and but you know, but both of them are—they make, they all make wonderful characters. Right. Jefferson Smith and Mister Smith goes to Washington is a is a character as compelling as in his own way as any character that fails, or like Charles Foster Kane. I
0: think it's one of the, the clear signs of some of the greatest directors who worked during this period you know during the quote-unquote studio system where they tend to work with the same people over and over again as as we know wells did and of course capra did too where they had their people who they depended on the most and who gave them their who helped the most and were probably very important in the overall successes in the long run Mm -hmm. so where obviously you've already said it but you 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 definitely view Citizen Kane as the greatest movie ever made, or do you say that exactly, or you put some conditions on that, or, or where do you see it? Where does it rank for you?
1: I don't. If I think if, if you had to choose one, if there's only one, I would make it Citizen Kane. There are certainly other great films, and I prefer to, to do it as, I think there are films that group together as the greatest. Uh, you know, you can't compare Lawrence of Arabia to Citizen Kane, even though they're both about very powerful male personalities who both in their own way failed. Um, but how do you compare Lawrence of Arabia to, to Citizen Kane? Right. They're all great. To me, what comes out of Citizen Kane that, that puts it a step above is not only is it truly a great film, possibly the greatest American film of all time, but the level of inspiration it still provides, not just to fans who see it for the first time and go, holy cow, This is an amazing piece of work. This shifts everything I've thought about making movies uh, or about watching movies before. Uh, The same way that it does that with filmmakers, where there are dozens, if not hundreds, of prominent filmmakers who have used Citizen Kane or can cite Citizen Kane as the film that really got them interested in the creative possibilities. I mean, the first film, I'm not a filmmaker, but... I can still remember the very first film that made me think, wow, movies are really cool. And that movie was the first time I saw Jason and the Argonauts. A wonderful film from the early 1960s. Not a fantastic film, but it hit me at just the right moment that I thought movies are fantastic. Um, do I think it's a great film? No. But it's it's certainly where it got me started thinking about that. And there are a lot of other people who... maybe didn't even realize that they wanted to be filmmakers who saw Citizen Kane and said, wow, this is what I want to do. And that's, to me, what makes Citizen Kane so great.
0: Well, to turn it around then, I do remember seeing Jason and the Argonauts in the theaters. I'm a little, I'm not sure how old you are, but I suspect I'm older than you. But uh, I, and it was one of those films you went to see multiple times. It was in the early, you know, not that that didn't happen because, Remember, of course, that was the only way to see a lot of these films. You had to go to the theaters, and so multiple viewings were normal. But I can definitely know that I saw Jason, and my brother and I went to see Jason and the Argonauts more than once. And it was just, it was good storytelling. They used the special effects. It was Harryhausen's special effects. I mean, it was just a great movie. You know, great or great in the sense of... Uh, You know, groundbreaking? Who knows? But, I mean, you're right. It was just an example of a movie that said, yeah, this is a movie. I mean, it just comes right out and said, this is something that could really only have been done as a movie.
1: Yes, indeed. And that's exactly the test right there. The other good test I like is my wife's test, which is (laughs) did the movie do what it set out to do? In this case, I think it really did. But that's a perfect lead-in back to Citizen Kane because I can still remember as clearly as we're talking, seeing the film open and the giant... Crash. We're talking about Jason the Argonaut. That giant crash of music that starts the movie, and the movie, the music of course was written by Bernard Herrmann, who also mm-hmm. wrote the music right. for Citizen Kane.
0: Yeah, it's it, of course Herrmann. It's just unbelievable the career. There have been books written just about his career, and it's unbelievable what a kind of career and who he's been able to work with. And yet, his his work with Citizen Kane, it's almost. You forget it. Not as it, it's not as obvious because of the way it was used. I mean, obviously, there's no music, music over the opening title, which of course is pretty much just Citizen Kane, and um, it's used in a in a completely different manner than it's used in some of the other films he's done, including his work with Hitchcock. And but it still is unbelievably evocative of what Wells did.
1: It is. I wish. I wish that Citizen Kane. Uh, By the way, for anyone who's not seen the new, well, now a few years old, um, Blu-ray of Citizen Kane that was produced literally frame by frame by Warner Brothers, it is absolutely fantastic. It is a wonderful transfer of three of the original prints of the movie uh, into one composite that was used to create the Blu-ray, and it's absolutely wonderful. The only thing it's lacking, and I think that's because it just couldn't be done physically, is it doesn't have a music-only option. It would be great. Citizen Kane can be viewed in so many ways. One of them is watching it with your eyes closed or with the picture off and just listening to it and just you know listening to the dialogue and the music together and not even worrying about what it looks like because it's fascinating to, to quote, watch the movie that way. The other way to watch the movie is without sound and just watching the images. But I would really love to see the movie only with the music because for a first-time effort at writing film music, Bernard Herrmann really has to be considered a a composing genius. Uh, He'd written a lot of things, a lot of music for radio and for other productions. But to be able to capture music for a film as perfectly as he did, uh, I I cover some of this in my book. Uh it's covered in much more detail w- with music theory elsewhere. I try to keep it very plain English uh, for my book, but to create the mixture of themes where he has a theme specifically for Kane called Destiny, which is the very first few, five notes of the movie music of the music in the movie, um, the sound, the theme that he created for Rosebud, which is the next series of eleven notes you hear in the movie uh, a few a few minutes later. And then how he works both of those themes in all different directions throughout the movie, sometimes playing it more jazzy, sometimes with just a little bit of violin, so you get a hint, if you know you're looking for, of what Rosebud is. Uh, and then all leading up to the very end, where he combines the two themes as we're looking at the, as the, at the leftovers from Charles Foster Kane's life, the endless sea of boxes, and you see here the contrasting power, Destiny theme and the Rosebud theme together, all coming together, into the only time they used a full orchestra to make any time in the movie is is just nothing short of brilliant. And it's such another compliment to the creative team.
0: And I must say, I bought the uh, the limited edition that came out at the time with the 70th anniversary with Blu-ray, and I still, I still remember the first time I watched that, the Blu-ray version having watched as you point as we've talked about already some pretty bad versions of the of the film and it's just you yeah. look at it you just can't believe what you're seeing you're saying this is almost better than what they saw when the firm film first came out that's how good it is and there's also a lot of extras in there that are uh yeah. definitely add to the overall uh understanding of the film and the, the 70th anniversary version is also available i know in digital form i mean I know iTunes has it. They were selling it for ten bucks right now, nine ninety nine. So oh, wow. It's unbelievable that, that that the film itself is still out there for people to see and, and in ways that we've never been able to be so lucky to see as as, as good in such a, it is, a great it, method.
1: Format. It is absolutely superb. The Blu ray looks just terrific. The bigger the screen you can put it on. And I believe they also have a four K version of it, so there'll be a four K version of it when S4K becomes more popular, so that'll be even one more step. Right. But if I can certainly recommend to anyone who needs to watch it, wants to watch it at home, the Blu-ray is fantastic, but, of course, the real way to see it is on screen. Right. If you could possibly see it on screen, it's just incredible. So
0: what kind of plans do you have going forward? I mean, I know this, obviously, as you pointed out, you've been working on this one, at least in some form or another, for a long, long time, but what's next? Do you have other projects in mind?
1: Well, there'll be other book projects, certainly. I, it's funny, I, I, <laughs> I keep trying, after 25 years simultaneously, well, if you count up to today, more like 30 years, uh, I'm not a film writer. I love writing about films. It's a very linear, interesting story, especially with a story as controversial as the story of the making of Citizen Kane. But there aren't any other movie books in my future other than reissues with additional material Of the other two books that I wrote, um, the first one being on Casablanca, which uh, I would like to redo, uh, With I touch briefly uh, in that book about, well, the book is, of course, all about the making of Casablanca, and I touch more briefly than I think I would do now on the impact of World War II on Hollywood and Los Angeles in America. At that point, because the movie was being made at precisely the moment that the war was starting, uh, and that really, there's no way to comprehend how truly shocking that was to people at home. Not just because it was uh, people were afraid to go and fight overseas or concerned about it, but the legitimate thought that Southern California might be attacked uh, by the Axis forces, and I think that's that really plays into the creation of, of Casablanca and I need to put more of that in. So that would be my next step. And then at some point down the road, incredibly enough, there'll be a 50th anniversary for The Godfather. Yes. And I'd like to redo my book on The Godfather for that as well. Right. Uh, but in the interim, new books, uh, they'll all be going w- way away from from uh, uh, the movie business. First, there are, I mean, there are always, right now, there are new books about new films coming out, which are part of the contracted, work of doing the movie. Like right now, I just saw today, there's a book about the making of the art of the jungle book, uh, Disney's new film. Right. Uh, But in terms of old movies, the combination of a great movie and a movie with popular appeal and having a good story behind it, I can't think of another movie that, that would really have those three items that would make, that could be saleable to a publisher which is okay because I'd really rather go back to doing what I'm, what I normally do, which is write about a whole lot of other things. Well, of course,
0: after you've written about Citizen Kane, Casablanca and the Godfather, not really sure what else you could do anyway to, to top that. I mean, we could call you Orson Welles, you know, the third or something, but you know, you, you're, you're, you're putting yourself in a position where it's hard to go higher than that. When you think of those three films.
1: So well, there's uh, one, there's one I would have liked to have done. Uh, and I kid the author of that book. The one I would have liked to have done would have been uh, the book that came out for the 25th anniversary of the making of Lawrence of Arabia. Ah, okay. Uh, because it's such a spectacular film, and they have beautiful color photos of it. Uh, and I kid Bob Morris, who was the, the, the principal writer on that project. I kid him all the time because he had uh, he not only wrote, which in my mind is the most thoroughly written book about the making of a film ever made. But I kid him because, yeah, you had you had a lot of people who are actually alive, Bob. I only had, you know, four. Uh, he actually talked with a, a great number of people involved in the production. And to my mind, that's not just a a great read. It's also beautifully done with just dozens and dozens of color photographs from the film. So that would have been the one I'd wanted to do. That would have oh, okay. been the other one I'd want to do. So I can't think of another one I'd like to write about. And there are certainly other film subjects I'd right. about, but not a not necessarily individual movie-making of books. So that's not where I'm hitting anyway. So with any luck, I'll be doing something quite more like my regular work.
0: Well, what can I tell you except I hope people read this book and, and more importantly, go back and watch the film. Uh, it deserves to be watched as many times as people have want to. I mean, it's just still unbelievable what the film did, but also you brought a, a great view of it and, and as an overview and as a as a detailed discussion of the film your book is, did a really great job i know it's just about to come out we're recording a little bit before it's really official release date but i suspect it's going to be very popular with people which i'm glad for because it definitely deserves uh the credit that uh, hopefully it'll get oh thank you so thanks for talking to me harlan i really enjoyed our discussion thanks you. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Harlan. His book will give you a new view of a great film. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film.